Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, beloved. Excellent. I see you still have that Baptist flavor. Uh, It's wonderful. Tonight sounds like an exciting night uh, to be hearing about God's work, both um, in a sort of historical, biological, biological, biographical uh, way, uh, and then also to hear of his work in in Africa. I hope you're as as encouraged to to come and to hear tonight as, as I am. And thank you for coming this morning to the first of our, our Bible readings. You know, I always find it quite impressive that the government declares a bank holiday so you can come this morning uh, <laughs> and share in God's word together. I do uh, want to ask your forgiveness for something. If, if my teeth start to clatter, it's because I'm still accustomed to a Caribbean climate. So it's a little bit cold for me. Uh, I was encouraged, though, to come outside the house this morning. I put on a big leather coat. I thought, I'm probably going to look foolish walking through the streets with this coat on. Then I saw all these people walking toward me with parkers and stuff. I was okay, all right, everybody else is cold, too. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 24. If you're using the Bibles in the pew, you'll find that on page 1066. Luke chapter 24. And as you turn there, I just want to ask you a a few questions to sort of think about as you're turning. The first one, very simply, is this. How do you you read your Bible? What's your general approach? Do you have a particular time that you read your Bible? Perhaps a particular place in your house? Uh, Do you read your Bible with a, a journal and pen in hand or and some other reading tools? And more specifically, how do you prepare your heart and mind to read the Bible? Are there things that you do to to ready your soul for this encounter with God and his word? And I wonder to what extent we have any models, any examples, any patterns to follow in Bible reading. Was it watching mom and dad in their faithful routine or perhaps someone at university with a college ministry who who taught us to read the Bible or or maybe it's trial and error. We've kind of bumped along until we found something that works for us. And whatever that model is, do you mentally, spiritually, practically read your Bible the way Jesus read his Bible? That's kind of what we want to think about in these Bible readings is how our master read the scriptures and how he understood the scriptures and how that understanding shapes how we then read the Bible and shapes practically our approach to the scriptures. And here's my main assumption here is that we read our Bibles best when we read them the way the Lord read his. We read our Bibles best when we read them the way the Lord read his. And so I want to start in Luke 24, classic passage, the end of Luke's gospel, the final chapter of Luke's gospel is after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus appears first to two men on the road to Emmaus and then to his disciples gathered together. And he says some really foundational things about the scriptures and about how we should read them. 
And we're going to settle on verses 44 to 47, but just for context, I want to read beginning in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. If you're new to the Bible and you hear me say chapter 24, that's the big number on the page. And you hear me say verse 13, that's the small number. So Luke chapter 24, verse 13. This is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and they said to them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. 
Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray together. Father, we would, as this word says, ask of you to open our minds. Oh Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, people who are slow of heart and sometimes find it difficult to believe. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with understanding, enlighten our eyes, grant that we should hear and read and study your word with faith, and that we might, Lord, be caught up more deeply into your glory. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So how did Jesus read the scriptures in this passage? I want to suggest to you four things here that our Lord did in his approach to the Bible that should shape how we approach the Bible and then suggest three or four things uh, for us to do in our own devotion to God's word. The first is this. The Lord, the Lord read the scriptures autobiographically. He read the scriptures autobiographically. You see that there in, in verse 44? He makes this stunning claim 400 years after the Old Testament is completed that, that the Old Testament was in fact written about him. Well, think about that for a moment. It's 400 years before his birth when Malachi is closed. Some of the books are, are centuries older still. And there he is on this road with his disciples and in his room with the disciples. And he's referring to the holy books of Israel, which they would have been taught or heard read in the temples from, from their infancy, really. Books that spoke of God, of his mighty acts of deliverance, of his awesome power and radiant glory. Books that recounted the promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that told the development of Israel as a nation, of their, of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt, and, and of their, their wanderings in the wilderness, that, that told the story of the founding of the nation and their inhabiting the promised land, and, and told those sad parts too about the, the division of the nation between north and south, Judah and Israel, of wicked kings and glorious kings, of mighty battles and agonizing defeats. The books of law and of wisdom and poetry. And Jesus says, it's about me. It's about me. He, 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 he's saying that the Bible is his, is his autobiography. Now, when we write autobiographies, we tend to write them after we're alive. Right? <laughs> We've lived a little while and maybe done a thing or two and and we tell the story retrospectively. 
amazing thing about the autobiography of Jesus Christ is that it's told so much of it prospectively. It's written before he was incarnate, centuries before. That God sat down in print the life of his son, the story of his son. And when Jesus comes to the Bible, he, he reads the Bible as a, as a story about himself, the law of Moses and the prophets and the, and the Psalms. This means there's no part of scripture where his story does not emerge. There's no part of our Bibles then that, we, that can be adequately read without at some point coming to see Jesus, without at some point getting a, a glimpse of the Savior. We can talk more about how to do that, but just, just notice in the first instance that that's, that's how Jesus reads the Bible in verse 44. Notice the second thing then. That the Lord reads the scriptures as a unified story. It's 39 books, it's what we would call the Old Testament, telling one story. There's a unity to the scriptures. That, that's part of what's meant in this reference to the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the writings. That's, a, that's an Old Testament, it's a Jewish way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Now, these are not fragmented stories and, and isolated incidents. Yes, they occur at different points in history and, and even in different places of that, that part of the world. And, and yes, there are many different actors at different times and in different places, but, but fundamentally it's one story. It's one story of, of God's redemptive work of God calling for himself a people and making them a great people of every tribe and language and tongue. And, and, and that story has, has really one major sort of spine that, that holds it together. It all hangs on, on one rod, namely Jesus himself, the Christ, the Savior of God. So that when we're reading our Bibles, we're, we're reading that one story, and we're progressing in that story as we read along, right? That, that, that God is progressively revealing more of himself as we work our way through, through the Bible, from, from the very beginning, from the, from the garden, all the way down to the close of the Old Testament in Malachi. And then coming forward in the New Testament, and then even looking forward beyond that point, in many respects, in, in the book of Revelation, what we're getting is one progressive story. The rod of which, the spine of which, is Jesus himself. And so this means whenever we're reading our Bibles, wherever we're reading our Bibles, we have to sort of ask ourselves, where am I in the story? And how does this fit with the rest of the whole? What does this tell me now about, about God and his redemption, about Christ, his Savior? What, what, how does this advance my knowledge of him from the books that have been written before and how does that fit with the books that come later so Jesus read his, read his Bible in this way as a unified story and then thirdly Jesus read the Bible teleologically that's my one fancy word for today <laughs> teleologically T-E-L-E-O-logically <laughs> okay what does that mean well he read the Bible with the end in mind with its fulfillment in view. You see it there? He talks about in verse 44, everything written about me, notice again he says, that must be 
fulfilled. You see at the end of verse 44? Must be fulfilled. In other words, he understands that in the Old Testament there is something kind of promised. There's something looming out in the, in the future of the story that, that hasn't yet come to pass. There's some things that are, that are even in some ways veiled or, or hidden to the, to the Old Testament Jewish reader. But now to Christ and to us, we, we have the fulfillment, we have the unveiling, we have the, we have the purpose achieved, established. But there are things written in the Old Testament that, that must come to pass, and those things are sometimes in the form of prophecies. So we think of the, the great prophecies of Isaiah, for example, of a son that will be born, on whose shoulders the government would rest, who would be the prince of peace. Or, or we think of the, the great prophecy of Micah, Micah 5, verse 2, prophesying that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So, so the, the Old Covenant is prophesying, but, but also the Old Covenant prophesies not just with words and predictive promises, but, but even the very pattern of the Old Testament speaks of Christ. So you remember how Matthew opens his gospel with, with, with telling us that, that, that out of Egypt, God would call his son? He's referring back to the, 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 the Egyptian bondage of Israel, and, and the flight into Egypt and out of Egypt as, as paradigmatic of Christ's own birth, of Christ being called forth into the world. That even the very pattern of Israel points to, of their history, points to the coming of Christ. There are types and figures and other ways that Christ has pointed to. David is a king who's, to whom is promised an everlasting ruler. And so they begin to look for the son of David, one like David, but greater than David. Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises another prophet, one who is, is like him, but greater. And so you get these figures in the Old Testament that, that are Christ-like figures, but not quite the Christ himself. And so Christ comes and, and fulfills that. He is the purpose, he's the end, he's the result, he's the goal to which the scriptures point. And so he read his Bible in that way, uh, in that autobiographical, teleological way. Uh, and, and the Bible then sort of culminates in him. All of history is moving toward this climactic fulfillment in Christ. And so the proper reading of the Bible requires that, that a nose for that, an, an instinct for that, for, for getting to Christ and his fulfillment of the scriptures wherever we are in the scriptures. He's the end of all history. He's the sum of all history. Let me give us a fourth thing from this text. The Lord Jesus, our Savior, reads the scripture in a gospel-centered way. In a gospel-centered way. Look there again with me in verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on a third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He'd said a very similar thing on the road to Emmaus when he was talking to the two uh, who were wandering on the road 
They recount the sort of things that had gone on. Uh, and Jesus speaks to them in verse 32. They said to each other, oh, I'm a little bit too late in the story. Where, let me find that verse there. Verse 25. They're telling him the events of the visit to the tomb, the ladies seeing the angels and so on. And, and verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's striking that when Jesus reads the Bible, he just keeps seeing the cross. And when he reads the scriptures, what, what sort of looms out large to him is not just a, a, an autobiography in general, and not just the sort of the sweep of history, but, but what sort of stands out to him most clearly, and, and what he in some ways just sums the Bible up in, is the cross. That the Christ, that is the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the, the Messiah chosen by God, that he must suffer, must. There's a necessity there. There's this driving impulse. There's this inescapable direction to which all of redemptive history is headed. It's headed to Calvary. It's headed to the cross. That he must suffer there. He must, he must die. He must be punished for the sins of the world. It is how God has, has designed our redemption. And it is why the Son has come into the world to fulfill this mustness of Scripture, this necessity that blood be shed for the redemption of sinners. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. All the sacrifices are, are simply shadows and types pointing to that one true sacrifice. The, the blood of bulls and goats, the writer of Hebrews tells us, could never take away our sins. But now the blood of the Son of God, to which the scriptures are pointing. Oh, that blood. What can wash me? What can cleanse me? That blood. And Christ says here that the scriptures is about this gospel, that the Christ, verse 46, should suffer, but also on the third day rise from the dead. And the scriptures are, are looking forward to that. They're, they're looking forward to the rising of the Messiah. From everything from Psalm 17, verse 15, where David says there, I, in my righteousness, when I awake, I shall see God. Or Job, I know my Redeemer lives. And throughout all of the Old Testament, we, we get these indications of a, of a resurrection, even when the prophet is told to prophesy to dead bones. And the word of God goes out and the bones rattle and, and get sinew and tissue and, and, and stand up and, and live again. It's the, the resurrecting power of the word of God. It is the power of the gospel to, to raise us from the death of our sin to the eternal righteous life of Christ. The whole scripture is proclaiming to us the gospel. So much so that Paul would say in Galatians 3 verse 8 that when God promised to Abraham that he would make him a mighty nation and bless all the nations in Genesis 12, that God was speaking the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. It's the blazing cross that is the center of every page of the scriptures, the way Jesus reads it. And notice something else. This is a missions convention, and so we ought to observe this in verse 47. That repentance and forgiveness of sins, which is how we enter into this eternal life. We must turn from our sins. And we must put our faith in Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And more than that, as our God and our Savior. And, and, and thus we are forgiven our sins. But notice now what's to happen with that. That repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That Jesus reads his Bible seeing the gospel and seeing the work of missions flowing out from the gospel. That, that part of what the Bible is about, the whole Bible is about, is the gathering of the nations, the preaching of the gospel, the making of one new humanity of every tribe and language and tongue on the earth. So that if we're reading our Bibles and we're not reading them in a way that, that fuels in us this desire to play our part in the preaching of his name to all the nations, whether that's to pray for the nations or to give to the work of missions or, or to encourage missionaries, or whatever it is, if, if we don't have a, a kind of missionary impulse birthed in us by the reading of the scriptures, we're not quite reading it the way Jesus read it. Because when he sums it up, that's what it's about. It's about him and the good news about him, that there is a redemption for all the nations in the gospel. And so this is how our Lord in Luke 24 models for us the, the reading of the Bible. And this has implications for how we read the Bible, doesn't it? Let me give us three. You probably have thought of others. And maybe you can come give me your notes and I'll add them in the next time I do this talk. <laughs> but let me give you three. Number one, if Jesus reads the Bible autobiographically, we must read the Bible biographically. If Jesus reads the Bible autobiographically, we must read the Bible biographically. In other words, the Bible's not about us. We can't be so hasty to get to, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? No, we've got to first run the Bible through Christ. We've got to first sort of understand what the writer means in his context. And maybe bring that up to what that would mean for all of Israel. And then bring that over to Jesus and his fulfillment of all of that expectation. Then bring it down into our lives to apply properly. Now the Bible is about Jesus means that it's, that it's not about us. And so if we approach our Bibles thinking primarily about us, we're going we're to miss Jesus. We're going to miss Jesus. Our lives are not big enough to be foundational and include Jesus. His life is. His life is big enough to include us all. And, and so when we read the Bible in light of who he is, we actually come to understand who we are more accurately, more effectively. If we read the Bible autobiographically, we'll actually remove Jesus from the story. We, we won't necessarily intend to. 
It's just that we won't have eyes to see him as we ought to. We'll, we'll make him, we'll place him in the lesser role. And it's a temptation to Christian life today, isn't it? When there's so much pragmatic Christianity, so much how-to Christianity, so much teaching about how to be a better this or to how have a better that. You know, Jesus is almost a, a hood ornament, a dashboard, ornament, a bobblehead that we put in our car. He's just something that we add to our lives. It's meant to be the other way. Our lives are to be hid in him, Paul tells us in Colossians 3. Our lives are to be swallowed up in his greatness and grandeur and his love. In fact, we are meant to read the Bible in such a way that we proclaim with Paul, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself loved us and gave himself up for us. We, we want the reading of our Bibles to lead to the declaration of our death and the proclamation of our life in Christ. Notice the second thing. If Jesus read the Bible with the end in mind, teleologically, then we must read it with visions bigger than, again, our own lives. There, there's a place, there's a very important place for applying the scriptures to our lives. We are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Yet our smaller lives, as we were just saying, must be nestled not only in Christ, but nestled in this overarching story. The larger story focuses on the glory of God and the mission of God to, to claim people from every nation. And it's that larger story that gives purpose to our smaller story. You struggle with knowing what your purpose is in life? Maybe as I have, you've asked yourself or maybe asking yourself even now, what's God's will for my life? What's his, what's his plan for my life? Well, that begins with understanding his plan and purpose in all of life, of getting the big story together, of knowing what God is doing in the world, and then joining that. For, for that's his purpose for our lives. And, and, and even though our, our particular plans may, may be as diverse as the number of people in this room, so that fulfilling the Great Commission can be done whether you're a school teacher or a doctor or a janitor or a preacher. But they all sort of connect to that bigger story, even if we have different particular vocations. And all that God calls us to do, sort of footnote, this is extra. All that God calls us to do, whatever he calls us to do, whether it's while we're students or professionals or what have you, it's, it's sacred. Every vocation, every calling is wonderful. It's ordained by God. It may be offered up to God as your reasonable act of worship. It's not just that the preacher is holy. Trust me. Ask my wife. Don't trust me. Ask my wife. It's not that, it's not that the preacher is holy. And, and that the pastoral ministry is this unusual vocation and, and, and has this unusual sacredness. No, all of life is lived before the face of God. And all of life is meant to be lived for his glory. So whether you build homes or you're a homemaker, whether you're a cobbler or a baker, whether you cook those wonderful fish and chips that I love to eat in Northern Ireland, that, that is a holy calling. Whatever it is, 
It's offered up to God as an act of worship. It should be connected to that overarching story of mission and gospel proclamation and the bringing in of the nations. And God means for us to understand it in that way. So that any reading of the Bible that makes us more focused on some other story, some other plan and purpose for our lives, and that teaches us to, to shrink back or to hold our lives dear is actually a misreading of the Bible. It's to read the Bible with our goals in mind rather than with God's goals in mind. We're made for bigger things, much grander things. So let me bring us to a third and final thing. If Jesus read the Bible in a gospel-centered way, then we need to read the Bible in a gospel-centered way. I won't say much about this. I said things about it a moment ago. I don't know about in, in Ireland, but um, in the United States, it, the gospel or being gospel-centered is all the rage now, right? You know, it's almost in the title of every book that's published, and, and the publishers want to make us to think that, you know, this is some sort of new kind of emphasis on the gospel. Well, it's at least as old as Jesus, right? And older still because he's reading the Old Testament, right? The idea of being gospel-centered is really fundamentally a biblical theme, a biblical idea. He's teaching us to read the Bible in a way that points to his atonement and his resurrection and the redemption that is in him. And, that's to, and, and that, that's, that includes at least reading the Bible in this kind of constant repentance. Not, not to be justified again as this as if we must be repeatedly saved again or some such thing. No, no, no. But Luther said when, when, when the Bible calls us to repent, it, it, it didn't mean once. It, it, it meant basically to be constantly repenting, to be constantly turning again to God. And so we, we get to constantly turn again into the goodness of the gospel. Surprising to me how many Christians fail to live in the goodness of the gospel. I'm like that sometimes. I'm, I'm tempted to self-reliance and, and I'm tempted to self-righteousness. I'm tempted to, to pride. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to beat myself up when I, I've missed some quiet times. I haven't read my Bible that day. I'm, I'm tempted to, to beat myself up when I, I probably had an opportunity to share the gospel, but in the fear of man or, or, or some other thing or even just being distracted, I, I, I realize I missed the opportunity or didn't take the opportunity. I'm, I'm driving home just kicking myself in the spiritual pants. And if I'm not careful, I forget at that moment that that opportunity to share the gospel that I missed or that morning's Bible reading that I missed or that, 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 that word I spoke that I now regret and can't get back. None of those justify me. Had I done those things perfectly, they would not have contributed one iota to my justification. They would not have made me more righteous before God or earned me his salvation. Christ earned it all. 
It's his righteousness that has become my righteousness. It's his sanctification that has become my sanctification. It's his holiness that has become my holiness. And everything that I need in order to satisfy the holy requirements of God, I did not provide, but Christ provided. And all of it has become mine by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I stand justified before God, not because of my perfection, but because of Christ. That's good news. And the reading of our Bible is meant to turn us again and again and again into the goodness of the gospel, that we live in that goodness. We live in the riches of Christ and the wonders of his love. Oh, I want to read my Bible in a way that keeps pushing me deeper into Jesus and what he has done for me. That's why it's given to us we might know God and know even more that we are known by God that he first loved us while we were still sinners he loved us and Christ died for us and that beloved is good news so let us read our Bibles the way Jesus read his Bible keeping him as the hero of the story knowing that it's all leading to him and that he has come to accomplish what we never could in the gospel of his death and burial and resurrection and the offer of forgiveness and eternal life. And let us who have drank from that life drink from it still. And let those who have yet to come and taste and see that the Lord is good take and drink now, believe on Christ, and live. Let's pray together. Oh, dearest Father, we give you praise for your most holy word. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have given this word to us that it might be life and health and strength to our souls. That we might read in it and see that your banner over us is love. That we might read in it and see Christ your Son. And seeing him might love him all the more. And seeing him would become more and more like him. Help us to live in the goodness of the gospel. Help us to flourish and thrive in Christ, we pray, as we take in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.